Good morning, everybody. How are you? So good to be with you this morning. Hey, uh, do you remember how hard it was to wait as a kid? Do you remember? And I can say one word, and I know your minds will flood with images. Let's just say it. Christmas, right? Christmas. Oh, my goodness. Just can't wait to Christmas. We're going to get presents. You know, it doesn't help that in October, they already start decorating all the stores, right? Everything's decorated. You're just so excited. It seems like it's going to take forever. So Christmas Day, 5 a.m., your parents hear the wrestling of wrapping paper in the living room. Just can't wait. Just can't wait. I remember being so amped up as a kid for a family trip that we were going to take to Disneyland. Oh, my goodness. We just were counting the days. We were watching Disney movies. We were wearing Disney pajamas. We were drinking out of Disney cups. You know, I know, I know. You were there too. It, was, it just seemed like it took forever. And finally the day came. And we all loaded up in that white Pontiac station wagon. <laughs> My dad's driving five, about 10 minutes into the drive. We're all in the back seat going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Just couldn't wait. When I was 13 years old, I just couldn't wait until I was 16. Because at 16, I knew I was going to get my driver's license, right? And then I'd have a car. It's going to be so... Then I got to be 16, and I couldn't wait to be 18, because then I'd be a legal adult, you know, and I could vote. Couldn't wait. Then I turned 18. Couldn't wait to be 21. Turned 21. Couldn't wait to be 25. Now, I just wish I was 16 again. So many of us are in such a hurry, you know? We're in line at the grocery store and kind of finding which one's the shortest one so we can get in line, right? Man, it's so hard to wait in traffic. And we're just thinking, okay, which line of the stoplight should I get in? We're in such a rush. DMV. Enough said. (laughs) We are such a fast pace, give it to me now type of society. We hate to wait. Let's take a look at this video. That little bit of arrogance in the medical community, I think we could all live without. Like when you go to see the doctor, you don't see the actual doctor first. You must wait in the waiting room. There's no chance of not waiting. That's the name of the room. The doctors are all back there. We can't take them now. We've already got this room. And you sit there, you pretend you're reading your little magazine. You're actually looking at the other people. I wonder what he's got. That guy's a goner. (laughs) Then they call you. You get very excited when they call you because you think now you're going to see the doctor. But you're not. Now you're going into the next smaller waiting room. Now you don't even have your magazine. Now you got your pants around your ankles. You're sitting on that butcher paper they pull out over the table. Sometimes I bring a pickle with me and I put it next to me right there on the table. I don't know. In case the doctor wants to fold the whole thing up for a to-go order. Get your pants off and get in there and I will tell you what I think. Doctors always want your pants off. Take your pants off. Doctor would like to see you with no pants. Just get them off. It's my head. I said take your pants off. But I hate the extra weight, so I start, maybe I'll start screwing around with some of his stuff, you know. Maybe I'll turn that thing up a little bit. Take all the tongue depressors out, lick them all, put them all back in. (laughs) 
Yeah, two can play at this waiting game. Just once I'd like to say to the doctor, you know what? I'm not ready for you yet. Why don't you go back in your little office? I'll be in in a minute. And get your pants off. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> now, of course, those are all the lighter side of waiting, right? All the things that I've mentioned so far, you know, we, they irritate us. But in the end, we know that those things aren't really important. But there is this other side of waiting, this other side that's much more difficult and many times incredibly painful. Waiting for a job or waiting for love, waiting for a place to live, waiting for the test results, waiting for a marriage to get better, for life to finally get easier, waiting to get pregnant, waiting for the cure. And in times like that, if we're really honest, it's not just the waiting that's tough, but it's the why behind the waiting. Why, God? Why haven't you heard my prayers? Don't you care? Don't you see me, God? Why am I still waiting? For me, in my life, in years that I've been on this globe here, <laughs> it's looked like this. Seasons of infertility or joblessness, cancer in the family, loved ones who don't know Christ, financial stress or illness. And in those times, those waiting times throw me into this desert where it's just dry and empty and silence. And all I do is sit there and I wrestle with God. You ever been there? <laughs> yeah. Well, guess what? We're not alone. If you scan through the Bible and look at all these characters, and then you'll see that many people waited patiently for God. Abraham and Sarah, they were promised a child. It took 25 years before he was born. Joseph, received this dream that God was going to do something incredible. And then right after that, his brothers sell him into slavery. He ends up in a jail for as many as 16 years, waiting to see what God was going to do. Moses, when he fled from Egypt, waited, tending sheep out there, feeling meaningless for 40 years before he saw the burning bush. Hannah waited her whole life for a child. Job lost everything, everything, and he cried out to God, looking for answers, trying so hard to stay steadfast, and it was just silent. See, when we look through the Bible, we sort of get the impression <laughs> that waiting for something is something that God's people do. And that brings us to this first point, that throughout time, God has called his people to be waiting people. And we resist waiting, but God uses waiting in our lives to bless us and to transform us. And so we turn to Psalm 40. And one of the first things that we notice right from the very beginning is this psalm has a title. They don't all have a title, but this one does. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David. 
And so we know from the title this psalm was written by David, and we also see it was sung by the choir as part of the temple worship, that they sang these songs. And I think one of the reasons why is because the issue of waiting is something that we can all relate to. So what did David have to wait for? Well, it could have been maybe perhaps in the 16 years that he waited between the time that he was anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel and the time of his actual coronation, 16 years. And if you remember that during that time, King Saul was chasing after him, trying to murder him because of his jealousy. Could have been the time that David was waiting after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband and just waiting to be exposed. Or maybe he was waiting in anguish and hiding during the time that his son Absalom hired men to attack him and kill him and assassinate him so that he could be king in place of his father. Or maybe waiting again in just discouragement as he watched his son Ammon rape his half-sister. We don't know exactly the circumstances under which Psalm 40 was written, but we do know this, that David was a man who had incredible experience of going through t- trials and having to wait on God. And it's fortunate for us that we sort of have this bird's eye view where we can stand back and we can watch and see. David was in the middle of it, but we can stand back and watch and see how God used these times of waiting to make him into what God called a man after his own heart. And so we look to David in Psalm 40 to teach us something about waiting well, because it's certainly something that David mastered in his life. And so the first point is that David teaches us that we can wait with patience. We wait with patience. Just like Pastor John said, waiting and patience, they just don't seem to go together. It's kind of like peanut butter and tuna fish. (laughs) We just don't see the connection at all. But David says, wait with patience. Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I, waited, as I walked along. Now, the word wait here, if you translate it in the original language, actually means to stretch forth, stretch out. And it includes the idea of waiting with anticipation and intention. David waited patiently, which we can assume means that his answer didn't come quickly. He had to wait for a while. And all the time, David was hoping and believing and praying that God would indeed deliver him and answer his prayers. In verse 2, we see that it says that David was sinking into this pit of mud and mire, and God pulled him out. Now, most likely, there wasn't literally a pit. Of course, we see in the Psalms many times, David describes with just this incredible vivid imagery. He wants us to feel the the tension of his emotions and, and of his feelings and thoughts. So he describes it as this deep, deep pit. He takes us to this place where he's fallen into this deep well, this deep pit. And as he's 
reaches and even tries to climb out, that he sinks into this mud and this mire, and then suddenly there's this torrent of water that surrounds him and begins to overcome him, and all he could do is just gasp for air, and it's almost like one breath would be worth a million dollars. I don't know if you remember, a few years back, uh, 2002, there were nine Pennsylvania coal miners that were trapped in a mine for 78 hours. What they were doing is they were mining. They happened to be um, breaking through into a tunnel of an older mine. And as they did that, this torrent of water that had been built up in the other mine came rushing in. And the men just ran for their lives, just running, trying to find the highest spot because the water began to continue to grow and grow. And at times, all they could do was just press their chins and get their noses above the water just to sip a breath of air. And we're told that as they did that, they tied themselves together. They wrote notes to their family members and just waited for their impending doom. And as they were there, they said that they began to cry out to God and ask for help. And then some amazing things started to happen. They were discovered. And there was a crew on the surface that began to drill down and and be able to make an air hole so that they could breathe easier. And then they drilled another hole to be able to provide a way of escape. Here's a picture. As they began to pull these men out, covered with mud and mire, people around the world celebrated when all nine men were lifted to safety. And the men gave so much thanks to the rescue workers, but ultimately also recognized that it was God that delivered them out of the pit by His grace. And there's a great parallel here to what David describes as feeling that he's in this pit of despair with no way out, feeling hopeless, and God delivered him. Waiting on the Lord requires patience. You know, God doesn't specialize in microwave spirituality. He doesn't work that way. He uses times of waiting to wrap us in His arms to hold and love us, and to strengthen our faith. I don't think we have any idea or even can begin to imagine how precious our faith is to God. We get just a little glimpse of it from this verse in 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, and it says this. So be truly glad. (laughs) There's wonderful joy ahead. Even though you have to endure many trials for a while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. And when your faith remains strong throughout many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor at the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. We often wonder in times of waiting, if God's even there or if He cares. But be assured that God is very present in those times. He's very purposeful. We need to remember that God orders our stops as well as our steps. And that leads to our second point, and that's this, that we're to wait with praise. Wait with praise. We remember that David, as a young boy, used to play his harp and sing praise songs to God when he was out with the sheep, you know, tending the sheep. 
Such a beautiful picture. We also know that as a young man that Saul brought him into, Saul was grieved in his spirit, and David would come in and soothe him with these songs of praise to God. David was always a man who had a heart of praise. And so we read in verses 3 to 5, it says this. David says, He's given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. Oh, the joys of those who trust the Lord, who have no confidence in the proud or in those who worship idols. Oh, Lord, my God, you've performed many wonders for us. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. You have no equal. If I tried to recite all your wondrous deeds, I'd never come to the end of them. (laughs) You know, um, when we praise God in advance, while we're in the pit, while we're stuck, and praise Him for His power and His plan, we take ourselves to a whole different place. We take ourselves from being stuck to a place where we can see God. We take our eyes off of the pit. And when we just consider all of the ways that God has been so great and amazing and loving toward us, doesn't it just cause us to praise Him and break out in song? David reminds us that God's plans for us are too numerous to be even begin to list. Do you remember the great hymn, The Love of God, by Frederick Lehman? I love these words. He says this so eloquently. He says, Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. God is so good. He is worthy to be praised. Now, David also here reminds us that when God delivers us, it's not just for our own benefit, but that God uses those times to be able to bring others to faith. Sometimes God even allows us to be trapped with no way out to show others His saving grace. He allowed this to happen in the life of Joseph. Remember, we, we mentioned Joseph. And Joseph being stuck, his brothers sold him into slavery. And yet later, in Genesis 50, Joseph says this to his brothers, "'You meant to throw me in the pit for evil, but God turned it for good.'" To the saving of many lives. If we just for a moment were just to walk outside all of this and consider what a privilege it is to be used by God to display, display His glory and His power and His majesty through our life. What an honor it would be that God would esteem us in such a way to use our life to shine a spotlight on Him. And that's something we can praise God for. Psalm 104.33 says this, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will praise my God to my very last breath. 
David wrote most or many of the Psalms, and, and there's sort of a pattern. I don't know if you've noticed this, but you go through the, 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 the you, you walk through the journey of these Psalms, he cries out and he's anguished and it's dark and it's hard, and then all of a sudden he sort of lifts his head to heaven and his perspective changes and he begins just to break forth in praise to God. And it really shows that David discovered the secret of praise and that when we have a tune, when we're in tune with heaven, we have a song in our heart. And that brings us to our third point. And that's this, <clears throat> that we can wait with perseverance, with perseverance. Now, perseverance is a steadfastness in doing something despite difficulty or delay. Difficulty or delay. Verses 6 to 9 say this. <clears throat> you take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you've made me listen, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. And then I said, look, I have come. As is written about me in the scriptures, I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. I've told all your people about your justice. I've not been afraid to speak out, as you, O Lord, know well. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but there are many times when it's in those waiting times that my faith it just gets hard. And we go through this time of disengagement and discouragement. And oftentimes we find ourselves just sort of going through the motions and our heart isn't into it. David describes a time like that where there's just emptiness. He's performing these rituals and sacrifices and, and, and just sort of to gain God's favor, try, trying to work a way back to get what he needs, to get out of the pit, but he feels dry and empty and silence. And then at some point, he comes to this moment from the silence where his breaks through, and he, he finds out that what has happened is that all of these things that he's doing is meaningless without the fact that his heart would be engaged. And in some ways, this is kind of puzzling to me. He says that he was doing sacrifices and that his heart was not engaged. I don't know, but the, the Old Testament, we hear, that, of course, that Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. And, and God provided this way of sacrifice, a, a substitute for us. And in the Old Testament, sacrifices described in, in, in Leviticus 8 and 15, what would happen is you would bring this animal to the priest and you'd present it to the priest. And then you would take your hand and you would place your hand on the head of that animal. And that animal would be looking at you, you'd be looking at its eyes, and you'd realize the true cost of sin. And that that animal was taking your place. And you present it to the priest, and the priest would slaughter the animal, and then oftentimes they would take the blood. And they'd place the blood on your ear to represent the cleansing of your hearing to obey God and His Word. They'd place it on your thumb to represent the cleansing of your hands for all that you do. And place the blood on your toe to represent the cleansing of your path in every way that you would go. I just can't imagine walking away from an experience like that and not being moved deeply. And what's fascinating, too, about this 
few verses here is that the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that Jesus spoke these words, that David spoke prophetically about Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. And it says this in Hebrews 10. It says, The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. For it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that's why when Christ came into the world, He said to God, You did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you've given me a body to offer. Look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the Scriptures. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, Jesus Christ, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And then he sat down at the place of honor in God's right hand. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And so, amen, (laughs) and so it's hard to comprehend going through an animal sacrifice and not being moved by that, having a disengaged heart. But even more so, it's hard to imagine how we can come to a place of worship. You know that we do this so many times, and our heart is just disengaged from the fact That Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, did not come to cover our sins, but to remove them, to take them on His own body and bear them on the cross so that we could be made free from sin. (laughs) That He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what David is essentially saying here is, God, I've been doing these rituals but my heart hasn't been engaged. I've been missing it. And in this time of silence, God, you woke me up, that I've sought you desperately in my waiting, and I finally understand. It's like when Job said at the end of his trial, God, I knew all about you, but now, God, I know you. David became a man after God's heart from pursuing God's heart. David pledges himself to persevere and to do God's will, not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a sense of a heart engagement with God. David said, look, I have come. It's a term used when an inferior would address a superior, when a slave would address their master. It it represents a spirit of willingness and a desire to obey. And he says, I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. It represents the spirit of David. It represents the spirit of Jesus, who was fully God, but was also fully man. And we know that Jesus, on the night before his death, in his humanity, wrestled and pleaded with God, God, if there's any other way that this cup could be removed from me. And yet in a moment of surrender, he said, yet thy will be done. And we are the recipients 
of the obedience and perseverance of Christ to go to the cross to receive salvation. Hebrews 12.2 says this, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Persevering in the pit. It refines our relationship with God. It helps us release our stubborn will to His to get to the point where we desire God's will even more than our own. And the best way for us to discover God's will is to say, I will, to God. Last point, point four, is to wait with purpose. Waiting with uh, purpose is recognizing and acknowledging that while we're waiting, God is working. He's at work. It's this spirit of dependence that allows God to even embrace our brokenness. You know, God is the master potter. His great experience in working with cracked pots. <laughs> Psalm 40, 11 to 14 and 17 says this. Lord, don't hold back your tender mercies from me. Let your unfailing love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles surround me, too high to count. My sins pile so high I can't see my way out. They outnumber the hairs of my head. I've lost all courage. Please, Lord, rescue me. Come quickly, Lord, and help me. May those who try to destroy me be humiliated and put to shame. May those who take delight in my trouble be turned back in disgrace. As for me, since I'm poor and needy, let the Lord help me and keep me in his thoughts. You are my helper and my savior. Oh, my God, do not delay. David cried out to God and acknowledged that God was his only hope. His troubles were from the outside. I mean, he had people hunting him down to kill him. But he also recognized that his troubles came from within, that the consequences of his own sin were pressing down hard on him. In fact, it says that David was so overwhelmed by his sin, he couldn't even see straight. It would be interesting, although overwhelming, if God for a moment were just to open our spiritual eyes so that we really could understand and experience all the times that we really do sin and who we really are. I think it's easy for us to recognize there are things that we shouldn't do that we do, right? But we hardly acknowledge the things that we ought to do that we don't. (laughs) Our motives get so mixed up in there as well that the Bible even describes even our most sincere acts of worship as sometimes filthy rags because the motivation for them are even wrong. Since the very beginning, mankind has hid from God, hid their sin from God. But David ran to God. He said, please, Lord, rescue me. Come quickly, Lord, and help me. David called out to God for deliverance from his troubles, from without and from within. He asked God for protection and for provision and for God's presence. And he waited purposely. David embraced his circumstances and he counted on God to turn his mess into a message. It's a story of grace. It's God's story. It's also the story of a friend, Ed Anderson. I'm going to 
invite Ed to come up here and share his story with us. Will you uh, welcome Ed with me? Thank you. Good morning. So back on a snowy day in November 2010, you may remember my wife and I up here in this very same spot talking about an accident. It was a car accident that ended up taking one man's life, seriously injuring my son, ended up with me getting arrested and going to jail. Although I just easily gave you a brief summary of that day, March 12, 2009, it was much bigger than that. It is also part of who I am now, and I must always own it. The fact that I had been living a double life had now been exposed. But I also realized that I must use this story to create some insight into the depths of this tragedy. My wife and I told you about the accident, the time of waiting on court dates, legal decisions, sentencing, but nothing compares to the time of waiting while you're behind bars. Serving time in jail is inevitably a time of anticipation. But waiting in a place like that is not easy to do. This is a place of anger, fear, hate, sadness. Satan lurks around every corner. This was a real hard time for me. You know, I, I knew I deserved to be there, but I had no idea what a difficult time I was in for. And waiting? It was all I could do. So I used a lot of my time waiting, in reading, and in prayer, and was able to read through the Bible twice, and then was able to read a lot of other books that people had sent me. I think I read more in there than I ever had in my life. Um, while I was in, though, I was ridiculed by many for my beliefs in God, and the fact that I was trying to live out a holy life while serving time. It wasn't easy, but I knew I had to stand firm. I started noticing some of the guys would start asking me questions about my beliefs. Many of them would come to me and ask for advice about their certain situation or their family. Or I'd get questioned about how I could be so positive in the situation that I was in. And the answers would always come from Scripture. I was still getting mocked by others, but as I spent my time in the Word, I felt stronger and even more at peace with my presence there. And I really enjoyed attending the different jail ministry programs. And by the way, to any of you who work in jail or prison ministry programs, I cannot thank you enough. You have no idea how much I look forward to that stuff. But despite all of this, I still had some real difficult times in jail. When I was down, it appeared that that's when Satan would have attack and prey on my weaknesses and bring me to my knees. The waiting became unbearable at times. Waiting to hug my wife. To be with my kids again. To not have to look at my family through a thick glass. To see my extended friends and family. To go to church. To just go outside take a shower 
in my own bathroom to cook my own meal. Waiting just to be me. You know, to live in a place like that is such a downer. But most of all, waiting to do what I was missing out on the most. To be a husband to my wife and a father to my three children. Waiting to be a man. I knew my family needed me, and I was unable to be there for them. The waiting in this period of my life was the most humbling and despairing time ever. It was a place where I could not escape the fact that I had taken another man's life out of my selfishness, and that I hurt and disappointed so many, waiting in shame. But it was usually times like these that I would look to letters from my wife and my family. My wife's letters would pick me up and remind me of Scripture. And one of her favorites was from 2 Corinthians 4. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. You know, Heidi reminded me of God's promises, and God had me there for a reason. That reason was to praise God where I was at and to do God's will where I was at. That would make me realize again that I needed to be a light in that place of darkness. And I carried on with the best attitude that I could. I spent a lot of my waiting time writing letters, mostly to my wife and family, but also to some really good friends here at church. And the letters I received from friends from church really got me through some really hard times. Your encouragement and uplifting messages were such a blessing. Kim Thompson was also a very faithful correspondent. I received mail from her weekly, and I must say her quotes from books she was currently reading were a huge resource of information for me to carry on with while trying to spread God's word in jail. I did my best while in there to honor, praise, and glorify the name of Jesus Christ. It wasn't always easy, but it made the journey bearable for me. And I pray that it still touches some of the guys that I met while I was in there. I realize now, looking back, that God actually used me while I was in there. I must tell you that I've seen a number of guys that I met while I was in jail here at church. And I pray that my friendship and fellowship with them maybe help them with their decision to pursue the truth. It makes me realize how important walking with Christ is at all times. And I thank him for that. Psalm 40 states, I waited patiently on the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit and out of the mud. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. And now, I wait on him to lead me on the rest of my story. Thank you. When we're in the pit, sometimes God doesn't deliver us immediately. And it's not because he's unable. It's not because he's unwilling. It's not because he's unloving. It's because he's working all around you. He's working through you, and he's working in you. 
Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. David learned to wait with purpose, to allow God to work. And God not only gave David exactly what he needed, but also made him who he needed to be. See, waiting isn't just something we do to get what we want, but waiting is a part of the process of becoming what God wants us to be. So where do we go from here? What's your pit? What is it? Figure it out, and then one, admit you're in the pit. (laughs) Can't get rescued out of the pit until you admit that you're in the pit. God, I'm in the pit. And then, second, ask for help. Ask for help out of the pit. Say, God, please lift me out of this pit. And third, wait on God to rescue you. Our first reaction when we're in the pit is to try to climb out on our own. And what we've learned today is we need to wait patiently. God, I'm waiting. I'm waiting in this pit for you to rescue me, Lord. Can you do that? And I'll be waiting with you. We'll wait together. Let's pray. Lord God, we are overwhelmed with your grace. Overwhelmed with the beauty of how you take us from where we are and make us what we could be. Reflecting lights of your glory and your majesty and your beauty. So, God, I know that some of us are wrestling and waiting, and there have been things that we've been praying for for years. God, help us to trust and to wait and to stand in faith, believing, God, that you are working in and through and around us and making us new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.